Hey everybody, welcome to the Collective Podcast. My name is Ash Thorpe. This is going to be episode 59 with the talented Ty Rubin Ellingson. Ty Rubin is a, an awesome veteran concept designer. He's also a visual effects art director. He's worked on some of the biggest Hollywood films such as Star Wars, Hellboy, Avatar, Jurassic Park, just to name a few. He's got an amazing career. He's got some amazing credentials. He's got a wealth of knowledge. We share a lot of really fun stories that I feel are really worthy of your time. It took us months actually to schedule this podcast because he's very busy and myself included. So I want to thank uh, Ty Room for coming on. This week's episode is brought to you by our sponsor Basecamp. It's a product that I've been using for quite some time now. It's a really awesome project management tool. I recently found myself trying to find something through emails and I realized that it was on Basecamp and it really helped with just going straight to Basecamp and finding it there. It just cuts down on lost time that you can have and it also creates a really good communicative section for people to all go on your team or even if it's just for yourself and you're just trying to keep all your information, your Word documents or your images and references together. So for somebody like myself and a lot of the artists that I know that are kind of scatterbrains or have a lot, everything all over the place. It really helps to have a clean, concise place to, to have everything at. If you're interested in trying it out, we have a link at the bottom of the description and they have a really awesome setup where you can basically try it for 60 days, no credit card required. It's an awesome product and I, and I highly recommend it. So without further ado, let's get episode 59 going. with a lot of the same ambitions it seems like where you know we grew i mean i personally grew up in the era of like star wars for example and you actually had a piece of working on that you've you've worked with like jim cameron and there's there's so many things that you've had a chance to be fulfilled with that one of the things i was going to ask you is is was one thing i always try to focus on is is what about your what what is it you think about your personality trait that has enabled you to have these kind of experiences in life well i mean i I think there's a couple of things, actually. You actually, that's a question I've given a fair amount of thought to because I've been very aware of the kind of exceptional successes that I've been able to grab hold of. I mean, it, it isn't, I've never been one of those people that felt like, well, you know, this is the way my life is, my trajectory in life is going to lead me to these, to these specific kinds of major outcomes. I was actually uh, very much like, uh, feeling as though um you know every everything was could escape my grasp i i had an awareness that uh you know i had to work extra hard i had to have an extra kind of uh, a heftier strategy if you will a more precise strategy um and so looking back now from the vantage point of where i'm at you know after 20 20 almost 25 years in in the film businesses i can see for myself like wow these you know, Jurassic Park and, and the opportunity to work with Del Toro on his first uh, picture in the States. And that was Mimic, right? Yes. Indeed. Yeah. And um, so I have been cognizant about kind of the extraordinary nature of the successes that now, uh, you know, tick away in my career. The the one thing I'll say on, on one aspect of it is that uh, growing up in Minnesota, I grew up in St. Cloud, Minnesota, which is a uh, kind of in the northern part of the states is it's very it's a smallish town it's not the smallest town in minnesota but it's definitely much smaller than like minneapolis st paul um growing up there i felt very um distant from hollywood and very distant from filmmaking and and it seemed like another whole 
you know, continent, like a, another country. Yeah. And as such, I, I think I worked extra hard to assimilate as much as I could about it from a distance because I didn't actually expect I would ever make it there. So it was sort of like, you know, one of those passions that, that was pure. There was no, sure. there was nothing about it that, that was attached to outcome. It was just like, you know, I would see every film I could. I would read the Sunday paper and the TV guide and I would strategize for the week and figure out all the various movies that we were going to be on. And of course, in that, in that time frame, there was only, where I grew up, there was only six channels. So <laughs> that wasn't a very big list. But, but because there were so few channels, because there were so few options for viewing, you kind of grew a muscle. You grew a certain amount of, um, you know, uh, patience with film that you you would watch and sit through things just because, um, you know, you didn't know if you'd ever get a chance to see them again, or that you believed that <laughs> yeah. there might be some. There was nothing else. It wasn't like you'd go to the shelf and pull down a different movie. Yeah, and that that continued into college where. Um, I was a fine arts major, and the university I attended at St. Cloud had a student union building, and they would run uh, 16 millimeter prints of classic films, primarily, you know, classic uh, um, pictures that were being used at the same time in some of the film appreciation classes that were taught in the theater department. So, so I really looked at cinema as, first of all, an important art form, and second of all, something that I really needed to have a, bra- a, a depth of understanding. Um, it combines and, everything, which is so cool, you know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. and and so coming into my very first film gig, which that's another story as to how that happened. But early in my film uh, life at Industrial Light and Magic in 1990, uh, what I realized was I actually had a, a depth of knowledge of cinema that was that went way beyond effects films and way beyond science fiction films and way beyond genre films, way beyond horror films. It was a very well-rounded understanding of cinema. And that was incredibly important because when you meet with directors, especially like, for example, Barry Levinson, I had a meeting with on Disclosure. He's not necessarily a guy who's, you know, uh, a science fiction director. Of course, he did one or two films that have some science fiction themes, but he's really a guy who talks about film from a very broad vantage point. Um, that's true with, with Jim Cameron. That's true with Guillermo. That's true with um, you know, uh, David Goyer. These guys, even though they may have a specific genre, um, even though they have a certain kind of like, um, they really know film. And their references are from a huge range of pictures. Yeah, so, I've noticed that too. They're usually well-versed. The better the director, the, the better the scope they have. They pull reference from everything. Indeed. So if you if you have those if you have those references yeah. at the ready, if you've seen those pictures, whether it be the Searchers or you know a Bertolucci, Last Tango in Paris, whether it be you know you're the Passenger or you know whatever it is, you you're speaking at a higher level of fidelity. Yeah. You're speaking. Um, you're language. able to. Yeah. Exactly. So there was that that piece, um, which. Which was easy because by the time I arrived in Hollywood, I, I had it. But I was surprised by how important that was. And when younger uh, designers began to enter the art department at ILM on my, uh, at around the time I was making my exit, I was kind of surprised at the limited viewing that had uh, gone on with them. And I, I really promoted that they should see more films, more kinds of films. Um, I so, couldn't agree more with that. It just opens your scope. You know, like I'm doing that right now. And I think a part of it, you nailed it perfectly, is you come from a different generation of consumption 
Whereas right now, it's like the ADD generation is a very, it's challenging to really capture your grasp onto something, you know, unless it's just like, unless you're really engaged in it, you know, and it's just a, it's a whole different way of consuming product or consuming ideas, basically. So instantaneous, but it's frivolous almost in a sense of like, how I look at it, at least, you know, but I, I come from, you know, the generation of it's kind of the same thing where it's, you have the cha- the TV with the, like the 10 channels on it, you know, and you really yeah. enjoy that because you, like you said, you don't know if you're going to see it again. So pay attention, you know, so there's a power to that. Well, I think even when uh, on that note, just to kind of follow along that line of thinking is even when the VCR was new, you know, right. I, I mean, I was around when it was a new device and, yes, and, yeah. um, was very difficult to get VHS tapes. I mean, they didn't have Blockbuster. Mm. It was a local mom and pop VHS movie rental place, and who knows what they got. (laughs) They were getting what was coming out, um, and uh, you know that was that was also that you just I I think I saw eighty percent of what was in the store. Think (laughs) about that eighty percent of the 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 VHS tapes on in a store. You know, I'd seen them because there were there were so few. And then, you know, when they became more available, it was fun to take a specific director like Howard Hawks or, you know, or take an actor like, um, you know, John Wayne even or, or Humphrey Bogart, you know, and, and watch all, the, all you could and, and kind of gain a little perspective on why they were memorable and why they, you know, why they were remembered and, and what, what kind of made those films great. Totally. Yeah. So there was that piece, uh, which is kind of a perfunctory mechanical piece. The probably on a more mystic level, right? On a more um, on a more personal um, uh, passion and, and and driving level was um, that um, uh, that I I really was an, an a believer in the creation of opportunity. Mm. Um, I have this idea that um, you know um, to um, to uh, to think in terms of potentials to be optimistic in terms of potentials and to kind of um, envision uh, a greater uh, opportunity for yourself is key to finding it because I think the brain is really much like when you're doing a puzzle if you have no clue about what the picture is on the puzzle it's just random pieces it's very difficult to begin the process of putting it together because totally. you, you don't know but if you if you have a vision of what it is if you know what that picture looks like basically you know it's a it's a spaceship on moon or you know whatever the picture is and then you can start to imagine it and then the picture makes sense on another meta level it's not just pieces and it's not just the mechanics it's more of the underlying logic so um intention uh played a big part in my career from the time i was just out of high school i started to have a belief that intention was a real thing um and that there are these like reality loops like feedback loops that the more you look in a specific direction the more likely you are to find something there because the the uh the ability to perceive it is greater and greater so um when i headed out into the world as it were after my undergraduate work i i started to dream as big as i could and to really take stock in the fact that i could could allow myself to imagine myself being anywhere you know that i had the capacities i didn't let my insecurities have a voice i just i just 
proceeded with this kind of optimistic enthusiasm. You also had your dad's support, right? Your, what was that? Your dad was also a big key to your to your supportive group, right? I mean, you're, yeah, yeah. From what exactly. I read, your your father was an artist as well, same as my mom, who is a uh, an enormous support for me, um, which is a very important key, I think, in your success. But also, like you're saying, vision, you know, which is also really important. Olympic athletes, I've actually read a lot about that as well. Is is the highest gold level, like Olympic athletes, um, they already see that they've won, but they don't just see like, Hey, I've got the champion. They see every step of like, they have to run. They see the whole thing all the way through. It's already, it's already vision before they start it. The key to success, I think is definitely having a vision, you know, it's your roadmap, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Agreed. And I think that you can use the sports analogy also, uh, you know, no one sets out for the bronze medal. Right? No, why would you? Yeah. You wouldn't. Yeah. And um, and one of the things that I actually, uh, uh, I think, uh, I, I can't remember if it was, I think it might have been David Goyer who told me a, a, a story, but I, I could be miscrediting it. But but the idea is that, that no one sets out to make a bad film. Yes, you know? no one. Yeah, that's it. And what's, what's, and you know, and still people don't all win gold medals and they don't all make great films and things happen along the way, of course. But if you focus on that, you're distracted by it. So, yes. so there is that piece. And I think also that telegraphs to people when you're in a team, especially in filmmaking is a very much of a, uh, a synergistic kind of group effort. Oh, yeah. you know, it's collaborative. If you have that optimistic attitude, if you have that um, inventive attitude and you're on the lookout for success and you speak in s- success terms, um, it's it's very um, empowering to the group, and and it's empowering in a way that I think people like you um, on their shows. Uh, I will be the first to say that the value I bring to a production is not um, uh, limited in any way to what comes out of my pencil or what comes off my computer. It's it's my um, my enthusiasm and my understanding and awareness of the larger picture, and then my ability to. Um, troubleshoot on the highest possible level. Yeah, you know, to to understand the process um, with enough fidelity that I can uh, at least precognize um, some of the obstacles and maybe illuminate them or begin to build strategies to avoid them or get around them. And being that proactive player is is also something that's been really helpful um, for me to get opportunities and for me to kind of shape my career. So I would say that that. That kind of you know that depth of understanding you know uh, uh, is is something that I as an advice anytime anybody approaches me about like well, I really want to work in cinema and even now with games and stuff you know I really want to be a concept designer um, you know one of my first pieces of advice is always to well you know become an expert become an expert on the on the form and the and the genre and and you know see it see it and know it from a personal level. And then when it comes to uh, the creation of opportunity, uh, I say, you know, to, to, to forge a strategy that has to do with, um, uh, you know, personal empowerment and uh, this kind of, um, you know, uh, optimistic injection into the process in a valuable way. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I, I think also it must have been really awesome for you um, working with Del Toro, especially when he was you know, hungry working on the beginning of his career here in the States. But there's, I've done a lot of reading on him and I have some of his books and 
um, listened to a lot of interviews and a lot of the behind the scenes stuff, which I think you were actually on there as well, which is awesome. But he, he's this, uh, I think the reason why he continues to be able to make films and stuff beyond the fact that he makes entertaining films is that he's just seems like this energy of just go and, and make it happen and be positive and try your best and like create a synergy with your team. And I mean, to, to take, if I really think about it, um, lost or the freaking Hellboy is, is, uh, is a very interesting thing to think about creating into an American film. Just the name alone, it, you know, will throw, it will, will make producers run away from it, you know, um, just because of the, the name itself. But the guy, it's like, I don't know, did you have that synergy with him? It was that when you guys first started working together, did you just, did you guys just gel really well or how was that experience? Yeah, my, um, <clears throat> my, my relationship with Del Toro has an interesting beginning because, um, uh, one of the people I met early in my career at ILM at Industrial Light and Magic was um, Matthew Robbins, the director of Dragon Slayer, who also, you know, writes a great deal. You know, and and uh, you know, is, it was part of that whole posse of of filmmakers at Zortrope and is in with Steven and George and uh, and Francis and and I met I met um is that Matthew. American Zortrope you're talking about? Yes. Okay, cool. Francis. Uh, well, he wasn't I don't know that he was ever I don't know that Matthew was ever formally uh you know uh, a member of that of Francis's collective, you know, of the Zortrope collective proper. Oh, he's like but a backup they all singer. were they were all colleagues and you know uh, Matthew's up in the Bay Area and George is up there and Francis is up there and Matthew you know, I know, you know, was good friends with Steven and had worked on, I think he did some writing. In fact, Matthew, on the end of Close Encounters, when the big mothership opens up and the uh, finally towards the end, you know, this big door opens up and the first thing that comes out are all these uh, pilots, these airplane pilots that are, uh, these pilots that were in real life, they're based on these guys that were lost in the Bermuda Triangle. One of those pilots that exits is Matthew Robbins. He's, he plays one of the, um, <laughs> one of the one of the pilots, Perfect. and you know, of course, uh, with Dragon Slayer, you know, George produced that, and and you know, he directed it, and um, I'm pretty sure that's true. I'm almost positive it is. But at any rate, it was Industrial Light and Magic where they did the effects, you know, go motion and that stuff. So so Matthew has a rich heritage with the uh, with the that whole film community, and um, so I met Matthew, and I was really excited to meet him, and and he again, you know, I was just doing a little storyboarding for him on a commercial on a television commercial that never happened but but we really kind of enjoyed our time together and um he he kind of befriended me right That's he kind cool. of became a mentor and um has always been a big promoter of me uh so jump up jump forward probably four years and i get a phone call um i was uh at my desk and the phone rang and it was matthew and he 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 just said straightforward he said ty i'm, I'm just returned from mexico city i met a young director and you're gonna work with him and i said oh great and he goes his name's guillermo del toro and i said all right i'll write it down i'm ready <laughs> and so uh you know he didn't say maybe you guys would work together he didn't say maybe you'd like to meet him or anything it was just you're going to work together so probably you know within the next 6 months uh Guillermo uh came to ILM and had a screening of Chronos mm, um, that was his first film right 
Yes, yeah. that was his first feature film. He he had done some really interesting shorts. Actually, some of them are online. Some of his um, and early some television stuff, too, right? Yeah. yeah, right. So, uh, so at, at some point, I can't remember if it was for sure when the Chronos screening occurred, or if it was at a little bit later on. I think it was that time. Um, the front desk called me and said, "Oh, Matthew Robbins here uh, to see you." And so I walked down, and there was Del Toro, and he gave me this big hug, and we we had a conference room, and so we just went and had a chat, and. And it was literally like destiny, you know? I mean, I never, I, we had such synergy and such camaraderie right off the bat that, you know, it was really kind of shocking. And then uh, within the next probably six months, he, Guillermo called me and asked if I would consider uh, designing Mimic for him, designing the creature. At that point in time, the creature the, the, at that point in time, Mimic was a short. It was part of an anthology. Mm. Uh, Miramax was doing an anthology picture. and It had a really interesting lineup. It was Guillermo, uh, Brian Singer, um, Danny Boyle, and then uh, the guy who directed What to Do in Denver When You're Dead. I can't remember. His name escapes me. But um, it was going to be this, uh, you know, kind of up-and-coming directors doing these kind of science fiction slash horror pictures. But um, shortly after we got going on the design phase and started presenting the designs to the Bob Weinstein at Miramax, he became really enthusiastic about the project and, and approached Del Toro uh, with the idea of making it into a feature film. Um, and then Guillermo, I think, I recall that he wasn't um, immediately uh, on board with that idea for a number of reasons, but then very shortly he came up with a kind of a concept that he felt could expand the property into a feature, and so, so it became a feature. And then I rode the project from its its life as a short into its life as a feature. But I actually left Industrial Light and Magic in 1995 at at Guillermo's request, and Guillermo really got me started as a freelancer in Hollywood and really kind of helped me establish myself. Um, there, I kind of feel like Mimic, which I think I worked on for about 14 months in total, was like a, about about a five or seven year uh, life experience all rolled into about 14 months. It was pretty, that's how films are, pretty intense. Yeah, that's how films are because they go so fast and there's so much stuff going on and there's so much to learn. And you're ba like, for me, I have a hard time grasping all the details, you know, like the, because there's so much going on. And I just want to be, in, I want to enjoy every second of it, but it does feel like compacted time, you know, it feels like at the end of it, you're like, wow, that was, some people will never even have that much experience in a whole lifetime, you know, <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine a guy like, I was listening to Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, biography, um, and it was just amazing, you know, can you, I can't even imagine the life that that guy has created for himself. You know, just just him as as a character and as a person. You know what he's accomplished is just like, what a crazy life. It's a it, well, yeah. You know, but it gets back to what we were talking about in the opening. You know, there's there's two there's two statements that I always I always share with my students, and and uh, they both sound like late night. Um, you know. Uh, uh, self-help kind of uh, life coaching <laughs> kinds of things, but they really do work. And, you know, one is say it, believe it, achieve it. You've yeah. got to have enough information about 
your goals, enough information about where you want to arrive to, to be able to speak it aloud and then believe in it and then do it. It gets back to that sport analogy, you know, I'm going to win the gold medal. You don't, you don't say I'm going to run fast, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and the kind of the crass version of that, which, is, which actually I think is even more reliable in certain ways, is um, 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 fake it till you make it. Yeah. You know, you've yeah. got to put yourself out there in the game and you've got to get, get the 10,000 hours if you believe in that or you have to get the mojo if you believe in that or you have to get the, the you know, the synergistic, uh, mystic uh, universe working before you can get, get those things. But you have to put yourself in that uh, mind frame. And I think Schwarzenegger, he clearly has been that guy his whole life, you know. Yeah, he has a very powerful <laughs> sense of vision and, and obtainment, which I, I, I highly admire in anybody because um, that's a very unique um, character trait. Not everybody has that, and it's something that is rare. But, I mean, everybody has different different levels of it, I suppose, you know? I guess in the film industry, I guess Jim is, is one of those kind of guys, too, and Guillermo as well. And, and you know, when you're, I can imagine when you're, when you're working so closely with these guys who, um, who are creating at this level, are, are in control of so much power in this area, um, that's got to rub off on you. You know, I, I would imagine it has to. I mean, did you did you get a chance to work at all with George Lucas much at all either? Yeah, yeah. I, um, I'm, uh, yeah, that's another. Like every time, the, the one thing that I want to be clear about and kind of careful about is that I really did have a, an extraordinary life. I mean, it really is something where I look at it and I have to say, yeah, I did these things, but but it was always kind of an evolutionary thing that occurred in steps. Uh, mm. So even like to tell you the story about meeting Guillermo, it was like Matthew was somebody I really re respected and admired and had been promoting me and was mentoring me. So it was sort of logical that he would be making introductions for me. At the same time, the fact that it was Del Toro and not some some other director is very freaky. You know what I mean? It's yeah. Spooky. So there's a spooky quality about my life that I, it's like spooky in the sense of Einstein, you know, what, what um, Einstein said, you know, the spooky, uh, spooky forces of, um, uh, of the universe, you know, kind of a thing. So I first met George when I arrived at Lucasfilm in, uh, in the early, in, well, it was actually 1990 exactly. Yeah. 19, and um, when I met him, it was in the context of a larger meeting that, that was about a project that is too complicated to get into, but the project was something George was developing and eventually got shelved. But, but I met him right away, and my, my assumption was that everybody who worked at Industrial Light and Magic knew him. You know, I just assumed it because in the Starlog magazines and, you know, in all the little documentaries about Star Wars and things, it just seems like he was everywhere. You know, he was hanging out in the, in the model shop and hanging out with Joe Johnson and doing all this stuff. So I just kind of assumed it. It wasn't until much later I found out that actually in that time frame, he really was primarily stationed up at the ranch and not a lot of people had had an opportunity to meet with him. So that gave me a preliminary, um, you know, FaceTime with him. So by the time that the special edition of Star Wars was underway, which was just after Jurassic Park, um, when George decided to revisit the original Star Wars and, and do, add some things and, and fix some things and change some things, which, you know, people have their own opinions on that. Um, I was just coming off of Jurassic Park and was working pretty much exclusively with um, Dennis Muren at the time, uh, because the, because the digital thing was so small, uh, there wasn't. If you had, there really wasn't 
so little that had been done, but it had been done very quickly in a very small group. And I was part of that Jurassic Park group. Yeah. So it made sense that I would be involved with the... Uh, what a crazy with, time. I mean, that, it was. that shit it really was nuts, was. man. You know, it I remember was. being a kid. That blew my head away. I was like, I can't even believe what I've just watched. You know, I think it confused everybody because it's like, is this real? You know, and, and the concept and, and the story and the subject matter... I mean, how, who doesn't love dinosaurs, you know? And seeing them actually partake in this crazy Spielberg film, it's just like, this is this is amazing, you know? Literally, it's one of those moments in, in movie history that will live for, forever, you know? It's just, yeah. it's it's a special time. And that is so cool that you're, you had the chance to be in that moment where they're developing these technologies, pushing the edge of things, concepting and creating ideas, you know? It's a whole new new frontier, you know, which is really interesting. So sorry, I didn't mean to cut in. It's just no, no, no. It's stuff it's is so right. fascinating. It, there's that's another whole. You've pegged it exactly correct. I mean, if you were there, if anyone were there, any of your listeners, anyone was there at that time inside of inside of ILM, it was palatable. I mean, it was not. It, 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 it was it was like in the air. It was like. Um, the Renaissance. It yeah. was like the digital Renaissance. And it was like real. And you always read about the Renaissance and people like to say Renaissance man and people say, well, it was like the Renaissance. But when you're in that kind of a situation when it's real, it, it has a certain kaleidoscoping effect where, where things are shifting and changing with such a kind of fluidity and with such dynamic that you feel – you can sense the – you can sense the the breakthroughs, like you can sense the 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 immediacy of the of the invention, the evolution. It's not like it was hidden. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't. It wasn't like uh, it wasn't like something that was happening as like um, uh, a low buzz. It was. It was like something that was like a storm, where yeah. you could sense there was electricity and thunder and and sensation. And, yeah, I remember in that period on the Jurassic in the Jurassic time frame that. Um, you could walk into what the computer graphics department, which was really never a department. It was just a series of rooms uh, that had been wired, you know, that had been um, uh, connected together through wiring. And depending on who you visited and what they were up to, whether they were animating or doing, you know, compositing or doing, you know, coding or whatever, there was always people there. 24 hours a day there were people that would be there who had just arrived people that were leaving people that were you know sleeping that were going to get back up and work there was a sense of commitment and, and evolution that didn't have any real uh specific structure because everybody was there with this with this purpose right it was real um and and it was only about 45 of us that worked on jurassic on the digital side it was a small group so everybody knew everybody and you know we were it still to show that you can still do certain things with the with a smaller group, you know. Sorry, I yeah. just there's 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 a weird thing that happens. It seems with like the games and 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 movies, especially nowadays, where there's this huge construct of people and bureaucracy and paper, and it's just like that's why movies cost so much, in my opinion, <clears throat> nowadays. Where as what you're talking about, and a lot of my favorite films were more about having a f fewer amount of people that were really talented and devoted dedicated to the project you know 
but I guess that comes with the synergy that you're talking about. Yeah, it does. It's an addictive synergy. I've been in those uh, moments in my career where it's just you're flying, you know. And, yeah, and, and I'm not sure that I, I think that those are authentic. Um, those are authentic uh, events. I, I don't think you can absolutely prod them into existence. Do no, you know what I mean, I don't, they just I don't become think themselves. Can, yeah, I don't it's think like you a can flower blossoming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But at any rate, just to wrap that up, is that um, <clears throat> so? At any rate, then George was, you know, going to do some tinkering with the original Star Wars, and so you know, I went. And part of his, part of what was happening, uh, was that George he did not want it to. He wanted to see what could be accomplished with a very small group. Yeah. So even though um, I was tasked to to get you know, a, lo- a fair amount of work through, through George, through the production process. It really only, only added a couple of, um, I got some additional assistance from just a couple of designers, a couple other art directors, um, but it really was a, a small, even a smaller footprint. It was a very tiny kind of guerrilla operation to, to see what, what, how little could, you know, how much could be done with little uh, kind of impact. Sure. Um, so then anyway, that put me back in contact with George um, in a professional sense, but all having already had interactions with him and gotten to, to know him on that first year of my career made it really pretty straightforward. And he was a, at that moment in time, uh, with, the, with, the, with his interest in going back to the original Star Wars, I was, very, I was very captivated at the thoughtfulness of it all, that really these were things that he had really wanted to do, that the, each one had a, a certain – like one of the things that he talked about the first day was extending the bottom of the Jawa's big rolling vehicle, you know? Like he wanted to – he always felt like those tank treads, those big treads, that because it was a set piece, they, they could only frame to a certain height – and he always felt that that framing was obvious, that, it was, that all the shots are composed to remain below a certain line. So one of the things that he wanted to do was, was expand the shot and then and com, you know, composite in some additional walker, you know, Jawa vehicle above the treads, which I thought was kind of like cinematically pure, you know, that he was really trying to adjust the vision that he had. Uh, yeah, the limitations it. that he had. Yeah, he some of the decisions he made um, later to, um, you know, to change, for example, the, the infamous, uh, Greedo shooting Han first, I can, I can happily say, or I guess I can fortunately say that I'd actually left ILM by then. Um, Mm -hmm. and another art director by the name of Mark Moore, he had taken over the, the Star Wars, um, re-release and I remember he called me and told me that George had brought that up in a conversation and was thinking that that was something you want to do. And I didn't believe him. I said, wow, that's, that's not true. I thought he was joking. Yeah. So I was pretty shocked by some of the changes that ultimately made it into the film. But when I sat down the very first time to, to look at the list that George had in his mind, it was primarily just you know, fixing mat lines, uh, you know, changing the composition, adding to Mos Eisley. He really wanted to expand Mos Eisley. And then, of course, addressing the introduction of um, Jabba the Hutt, which had been shot. So that was already clearly something that he had wanted to do. Yeah. Um, so it's yeah, it was watching very... that too, having the, the Java be this like kind of overweight human character. 
It's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in a big fur coat. Yeah, the the icon, the the iconic shapes and things. I mean, uh, I had one of my favorite books that I have on my shelf. I have many that I love. I'm big into books. Are you? You know, <clears throat> I've never been as much so as many of my colleagues. Mm. Uh, if you if you see what Del Toro's library looks oh, like, I can't wait. I, I want to go to his house. Like, I'm a novice at everything comparatively, so oh, I, I really I have my own little um, you know uh, emergency. If I were going to run from the house in the flaming, uh, you know, what do they always say? If your house were on fire, would you grab? I have that half a shelf that I would grab, but I, I don't have a, a real big depth of uh, a library. Uh, At least I don't believe it is. I'm on. Well, yeah, p- perhaps. I mean, I, I wouldn't know. I have to see what you have, but I'm a big addicted. I'm, I mean, I guess that's my, I didn't really go to a specific art school. So my mm-hmm. books are my education, but there's this book that I have. It's called Star Wars Blueprints. I mentioned in the previous uh, podcast I had, cause we were talking a bit about Star Wars, but it's this book. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a, it's a new release book, but it's got like, like everything. It's probably got a lot of your sketches and stuff and random bits in there. It's phenomenal. I mean, like, and I talk a lot about Ralph McQuarrie and his impact on that franchise and how, how significant and important his his voice was and how um, George was a great facilitator for talent like that and allowing that talent to just really be themselves and grow and, and develop. And, and that's just such a significant part of that whole equation, you know. Um, and it's just phenomenal. It really is. And, and, and one thing I must say, too, about all the choices that George made with that, whatever he did, it's his project. He created it. He can destroy it or do whatever he wants with it, you know. Um, I, I don't think, like you said in the beginning, is a very good point. Is nobody makes films with the with the ambition and thought that this is going to suck, you know? Like I'm going to make a crabby film. It's like people just make things, and the people and the world around them react to them, you know, in different different capacities. We mentioned I mentioned a lot that Blade Runner and 2001 were were total failures uh, in the numbers sense, but eventually got ground once people started realizing that there was something special behind them and and now years later they they're regarded both of them are regarded as being this masterpiece projects you know by highly acclaimed people in the business and uh, you know critics and all that kind of stuff so i just find it really interesting you know yeah i mean I, I agree with what you're saying it's i think that it, like so many things once 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 you as a viewer invest in it you're you're um, creating your own reality in a way, and, and you have ownership of that reality. You can have your own disappointments and dis, dis, uh, disagreements, but but yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily um, it's not necessarily impactful. Do you know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. like it becomes very much specific to your particular vantage point. And if you if you collect individuals around you who share that vantage point, then that's that's what people do that's why life is interesting you know like if you want to if you want to if you want to find like-minded people that share your views and whatever they may be then that's part of the human narrative that's what we're here to do but it's ultimately it's cinema ultimately in my mind i'm a big believer in the auteur theory you know the uh, i think eventually it is the vision of an individual regardless of how much they collaborate at the end of the day it's 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 their it's their getting up in the morning on the first day that the project is real and then laying down on the last day the project is real and with the exception of the producer to be the only 
continue, the only continuity, the only thread that ties one into the other. That's that's the truth of directing that many people forget is that there's only one set of eyes, uh, one brain that goes from day one to the day that that uh, project hits the screen, and it's usually the director and the producer, and that's that's a hell of a, 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 a long haul it is and that's so, <laughs> a lot of decisions to be made uh, absolutely a crazy amount of decisions to be made and it's there's no right way I'm, I'm studying film myself and i agree with you there's there's a saying i often bring in up on the podcast it comes from a, a documentary that i love about filmmaking which is francis ford coppola making apocalypse now um, Hearts Heart of of Darkness. Darkness. i fucking yeah. love it i'm addicted to watching it because it's it what it relays to me is how far somebody's willing to go for the sake of art and creation and what he says at the end of it is that he's like someday somebody just a random kid is just going to make something and it's going to become famous because and that's the real art of it and i think what he is saying is that it's not about all these you know the the i mean maybe it is i mean obviously you know everything that added up equated to apocalypse now which is the film that it is which is wonderful it's a wonderful piece of cinema but I think what he's saying is that there's the 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 eventual basically what's going to actually occur is there's going to be a more of an artur there's going to be more of like a centralized vision without all the delineation I guess in the process of creation. But like as of now, I personally do when you're on set or you're with people and and you're really working well with them, there's a synergy to that that you could not get by yourself. So at that capacity, I absolutely love and adore the, the act of filmmaking, collaborative art creation, I think is wonderful at that level. And it seems like you've managed to really capture that within your career, which is really cool. It's, it's, it's a rare thing, I think, as well. Like, I think George Hull, you might you probably worked with him as well when he was at Alabama. Yeah. Yeah, he he. I actually um, got George to do some storyboards on the special edition of Star Star Wars when yeah. he was the brand new in the department. Perfect. And I have those uh, in I, the book. <laughs> what was that? I have those in the book too. I remember reading through it and I go, "Oh, that's George's work. Awesome." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he was he was a. Uh, I if I'm not mistaken, the first uh, time he walked in the door, uh, he was an intern, but mm, then was yeah, hired he was. subsequently. Yeah. But, um, you know, on, on, on the heart of darkness, because it gets back to one of our earlier uh, points, which is interesting, is in, in the beginning of that documentary, uh, talking about intention, yeah. uh, Francis says specifically, if I have a million dollars, but I spend it like I have $10 million, yeah. then everyone will, you know, get on board and then I will be able to be that much more powerful. So again, it's, there it is, right there, clear yep. as day. It's yep. intention. You know, spending a million like ten million—that's a powerful statement. Absolutely, and uh, it's a great line uh, too. Yeah, and I think it's very true um, uh, with with especially um, the focus that he puts on his films and, and the yes. way that uh, he he's able to um, work so, like you mentioned, so. Collaboratively with his actors and so forth. Uh, it's a very he's a he's amongst my very favorite filmmakers, and I actually uh, same uh, did get to work with him at a juncture too wow. for uh, on a on a project that was called Megalopolis. It was this it was going to be a, a huge film that he had written from scratch, which a number of his you know films are based on other materials. And it was actually uh, foiled, or at least it was actually, um, I don't know that it was officially abandoned in any kind of real way, but he was unable to proceed with it because it was set in kind of an alternate reality New York. And the idea was to shoot 
uh, a fair amount of it in New York, but the um, attacks of 9-11 uh, put that whole city on lockdown and changed the kind of the way that New York was perceived, at least at that moment in time. And so uh, that project didn't move forward. But it was an extraordinary opportunity to speak with him about his writing process. And of course, oh man, I, I was so just, jealous. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> that is really, that's amazing. That literally is amazing. Yeah. No, I, listen, I'm telling you, I, 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 I want to be genuine uh, as I can be because sometimes talking about yourself can be uh, fraught with with ego and it's I, weird too. I am yeah. yeah it's weird but but i'm at this juncture where i'm at in my life i i actually am very um i like to share that that these things are possible and that these connections can be made and that 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 there really is these um kind of accelerator periods where you get involved with the right people and and the interconnections happen and networking and these things that are talked about in a casual way are really critical they're really um, like it's like being a neuron in a brain. You know, you need to constantly be firing uh, to make the whole system operate. And Perfectly I, I get, said. Yeah. I get frustrated when when I speak with students and they're limited to their own own personal um, perspectives on what what they're what's going to you know assist them. They really focus in on one kind of art or one kind of movie or one kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And you need those understandings on a personal level to help drive your studio practice sure um but on a much more um on a larger scale when it comes to your career you should be more inclusive and, and expansive in your thinking that's my view i absolutely agree i mean you, you got to think as big as you possibly can um and and, and ask people hey you know like if you if you think this isn't big enough you know um people will tell you you know and sometimes you can think so big that it'll crush you but at the same time that's the journey you know, uh, that's sometimes I, I, I wake up in the day and I, I think to myself, like, how would a guy like young, young George Lucas or young James Cameron or, you know, starting off uh, um, um, any of these guys, you know, how would they how, how do they approach their day? You know, or how, how does an Olympic athlete approach their day or Coppola when he was, you know, creating before he was creating Godfather, you know, hungry and wanting to d express his love for film and cinema. And, 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 and how, how do these guys uh, what's the decisions that they make and how do they how do they think? And oftentimes when I listen to these interviews or, I, you know, like I scoured through tons of hours of, of James Cameron's interviews and, and behind the scenes and David Fincher's and stuff. And these guys, it's there. It's a different way of thinking. And I'm not just necessarily focusing just on uh, directors in a sense, but for me, I think a director of a film, it, it, they usually um, nowadays it's a little bit different. I think, but for for some of these guys, it's 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 uh, they're at the forefront of, of control over the the entire art form, which is a very interesting thing. You know, some are project managers and some are actually very much involved. Like it seems like Del Toro is, you know, which is probably why you guys work together on a lot of things. And you probably like you mentioned in one of your interviews, you always keep the door open for opportunities. Which yeah, is, absolutely. I mean, he just recently worked on his Pacific Rim thing, which is how was that experience? With I mean, you hadn't you hadn't worked on something with him for a while, like Hellboy. Uh, well, I guess. yeah, I think that Hellboy. Uh, Hellboy two. Hellboy. Actually, my involvement with Hellboy two was very minimal, and was really an unfortunate one of those strange circumstances because I I had already gotten started with uh, uh, Cameron on Avatar. Oh, okay. And of course, uh, Jim and Guillermo are friends, and. Uh, 
you know, it was it was sort of uh, it was sort of strange because I had expected that Hellboy Two would start a little bit earlier, and and so um, I think I'd been Avatar on Avatar just a couple weeks, and I actually uh, tried because it was so early in production to to do uh, a split schedule. Um, mm. to, I'd gone to John Landau, the producer of uh, Avatar, and said, "Do you think it would be possible?" for me to split a few days. And, and then once the, I had the meeting with um, uh, Guillermo and looked at the scope of work, and then once I kind of uh, talked to John, it seemed like it, it would seem like it was not a good strategy and that it would have, it would have proven to be very difficult. And that was, that did sadden me a great deal because I'd always been, you know, I always uh, would try to, to, to get to, you know, promote, my, I always wanted to be with Del Toro whenever he called, so it was very disappointing to have to say no ultimately to that project. Yeah, I can but imagine. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the the one thing about Pacific Rim, which is interesting, and I guess it it speaks more about the nature of that collaborative uh, experience of making films. Is by the time you know, by the time I was even on Hellboy, um, because I'd done Blade Two with Del Toro also, and then Mimic had ran so long, is that again it gets back to having a an understanding of of cinema that you can rely on to have that kind of vocabulary to communicate with directors. Uh, with Del Toro, it's like a, even a higher level of specialization because I communed with him and had meals with him and talked with him about his film and hung out in his house and so forth. It, it, we had a shorthand and. and uh, he he can he knows my skills he he knows what he wants from me um, and and we communicate in kind of a very um, uh, compressed you know condensed hybridized uh, kind of way a manner you know so he so it's very easy I, I really with Del Toro it, it, it's rare that I have to do more than one pass uh, one pass or maybe two passes on any design just because. You know, he, he, gets he knows it. he knows what I'm all about, and I know what he's looking for. So that's a synergy that you create over yeah. time. It's trust there. Uh, a lot of filmmaking is about trust. I, I realize as well. If a if a director can trust you and say, "Hey, I have a million things going on. Can I trust that you're going to listen to me and and take in my input and give me some back something that is going to help our project together?" And if you can if you can earn that, it's like you said, you can do like a napkin doodle and I go yeah 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 that's it or lengthen the legs a little bit or something or you know blah 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 or you know I don't know if I have budget for that let's adjust that you know and then go for it go I got another thing I have to take care of you know kind of like that I imagine the yeah I know it's exactly is, is, the case is key it's trust is so key with that you know yeah I think I think it's it's it, it's most definitely confidence and trust there's an additional piece though I might point to which is that your ability to um, bring something of yourself that in, that embellishes or optimizes or or amplifies the underlying concepts. So, so you know, you're not there to just facilitate um, the the facilitate the um, development of something as a static. Uh, version of what's described in the pages or what's discussed in the meeting. Yeah. You're there to expand upon and amplify yep. and and improve. I, I, I'm reluctant to use the word improve because improve implies a certain, perhaps a certain kind of modification. That's not sure. what I'm thinking. No, I know what, what I'm you're thinking saying. is is that you're you're bringing back embellish, I guess, greater. You know, yeah. When you do the best work, you sense that you're hitting the right 
you're 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 um, amplifying the the proper pieces. Yeah, you know, you're not. There's not a lot of extraneous exploration. It's very specific to the to the narrative needs of the design, to the narrative components of the design. Absolutely. I mean, the, another thing I was going to ask you too is is um we we've we've kind of kept in touch just kind of a little bit through Facebook. I thought was mm-hmm. kind of fun. And then um, sometimes I'll post up something that I guess you enjoy. And so the recent one actually was kind of cool, which is actually the seed and creation for Hellboy was Mike Mignola. And I know that Mignola was actually um, involved, you know, in and out with the first Hellboy. I'm not sure how much of the second one, um, the interviews I've read with him or heard about through him, there's a Del Toro's Hellboy and then there's Mignola's Hellboy. But did you get a chance to work with Mignola much as well? Oh yeah, yeah. Mike and I uh, actually, Mike and I first met on Blade Two. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah, okay. and and actually, it was interesting because um, Guillermo had what Guillermo had talked to me maybe six months before Blade Two about doing Hellboy, mm. and was I think he felt like he was getting close to doing that picture, and so yeah, he said he had to do Blade to get the accomplishment. Yeah, right. and so he had he called me and said, you know. Die, go look at this, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I went and looked at. I found Hellboy. I, I wasn't. I wasn't aware of it. I didn't. I hadn't been. I was doing other things. I really didn't. So I slipped my view somehow. But I remember thinking how difficult it would be, and I, I couldn't quite fathom how it would be done. The style adaptation. Yeah, just yeah. just the way in which it revolved around, you know, uh, so many a universe that was very. Um, exotic, you know. I guess yeah. I saw it as more of a. I saw it more about the environmental pieces and kind of the nature of the story, as, as opposed to just the visuals and so forth. <laughs> Mignola hates drawing uh, backgrounds too, so yeah, yeah, they're a bit, they're a bit vast and, and infinite. <laughs> yeah, they are, but 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 they're rich. You know, there's a narrative oh, yeah. richness to it, and I so so. But then, um, but then I got the call to come and do Blade Two, and um, I arrived and uh, the, met with the. A production coordinator and uh, she mentioned that I was going to be uh, that that I was going to share an office with another artist named Mike and I didn't even think of Mike Mignola I just assumed it was you know some local um, film guy it just didn't didn't click until we actually um, introduced each other you know and, and so we actually because he was still living in it and uh, I think he was living in um, Seattle at the time, um, but it might have been New York. I can't recall the detail. But but at any rate, he and I ended up being in the same hotel because I was living in Northern California at the time. So we actually, I I drove him to work and we hung out a great deal and um, had a lot of meals together and kind of became really uh, quite good friends. In fact, I actually um, shaved his head bald the first time. <laughs> so that was my most intimate Mike Vignola moment. Was, uh, which he awesome. still wears his hair the same way. So um, Yeah, it fits him good. Yeah, so we, we actually got to know each other best on Blade uh, Blade 2. And, um, and what interestingly, weirdly, uh, because I had worked with Del Toro on Mimic and that had been such a long show and I had a lot of experience living in hotels and, and kind of <laughs> back in those days, you know, you, you were still working primarily traditionally. Digital stuff was available but was really problematic. There wasn't any good 3D print. I mean, there wasn't any good um, color printers. And, uh, you know, so you needed to find a Kinko's. So so when I arrived <laughs> at the show, you know, I'd usually 
get my my hotel room and then I'd go out and find a Kinkos, I'd find, you know, a drugstore, I'd find a restaurant that stayed open past 10. I'd, I would <laughs> yeah, find out necessaries. How, how to park the car and then look for a liquor store. <laughs> so I think Mike kind of doing uh, his first show, you know, kind of way late in a hotel, he was... I remember him being impressed that I knew how to survive. And that was sort of our, he saw him, kind of saw me as the pro, you know. Uh, but yeah, in Hellboy, we shared an office also. And Mike, Mike was around for, if memory serves me, for a large, large part of pre production. Um, I eventually stayed on that project for quite a, quite a while past the other artists because I was oftentimes with Del Toro. He will ask me to kind of act as his eyes and ears and uh, eyes and uh, go watch um, uh, how things are going with um, the practicals, whether it be makeup or animatronics, those things. Because I had, I have a background in that through ILM and then through Mimic. So, um, you know, I, I usually play kind of a dual role, you know, an art direction role on top of a design role. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it just I can't imagine the stories and the fun, fun stuff. I mean, you've you've managed to work with uh, Del Toro for probably like over what it seems like more than a decade because it's Mimic was ninety seven. Yeah, then, well, we met in uh, we met in uh, ninety five. Mm, so, okay, yeah, yeah, so it's been it's a long time. A yeah, that's crazy. Uh, yeah, and I he's always been I, he's somebody I feel a great. Um, not only loyalty and love uh, for, but he's also been a huge uh, custodian of my career and a, a big promoter and a mentor with a capital M and provided me great counsel. And it, it, he's, he's just an extraordinary individual in my life, uh, not to mention him as a filmmaker. Yeah, that's awesome. I, um, I recently had the chance to do a poster for Pacific Rim and um, just the comments back from him just made my day because they were just like the nicest, coolest, like most fun comments back. <laughs> I've never experienced that with the client ever. It's just like fuck yeah, like the longest yeah I've ever read in an email. <laughs> it's like yes, yeah. His his, uh, his energy is infectious, obviously, which is really cool. And it's just like I guess it's just a fun ride, you know. You just really enjoy the process of it and stuff. Yeah, and and I think also is is though that he expects, and this is true with. Well, this is true with all directors, but I think it manifests differently depending on the particular persuasion or the particular makeup of the director. But but both Del Toro and um, I'd say you know Jim Cameron um, to maybe a greater level, not to compare the two. Sure, um, they really expect expect even beyond your A game. They expect. Um, they expect you to deliver on a level that is in keeping with the scope of the project. And that um, is, it, it, it's, it's, it feels good to have their confidence, but it also is a reality um, that one has to learn to uh, contend with when the, 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 um, um, the, the game gets that uh, elevated. You know, yeah. When the when the expectations and the 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 um, frequency, you know, the frequency of the um, creative uh, hits that that really high peak, um, it's it's something that um, 
it's exciting, but it, you, you have to learn to manage that. And, uh, and those two and not burn out too, right? Cause it's a long ride too. Yeah. You have to be very aware. You can't, you can't just work your way through it and you can't just, um, not not pay attention to it as a real factor so so as much as Guillermo is a uh, an incredibly uh, fun guy to hang with he also is demanding in a way that's very very real yeah it's, it's very um well, he needs that <laughs> yeah <laughs> so you done. just you just have to always uh, be paying in my mind the way I look at it is you have to have the micro and the macro view you have to look at what you're doing on a micro level and a macro level so you know you can't let yourself get caught in a in a side in a side you know spiral or you know often an eddy off to the side with with too much focus on a specific task because you need to always maintain an overview of the larger picture and the overview of your larger assignment and the roster of things that you're responsible for and how they fit in with larger production. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a good way of looking at it too with with how they. I mean, I guess that's just how you keep your longevity, you know, you don't burn out, you know, so, which I think a lot of, it's like probably a more of a rookie mistake, you know, and you can relate that to many things in life, but, um, films, they, they do take a long time. And it's another thing I found that I find is an interesting trend with what you're doing is that once you get in on the team, they're like, all right, you get it. You can play with us. And they just keep you on. Uh, some people come on to a film, they, they last for a couple of weeks or a month or so. Um, but if you have that infectious hard work ethic and you just want to go, 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 and, and, and you understand the language and the importance of getting things done, um, you earn your keep and then, you know, you're just part of the club and it's important for you to be involved as well, which is, which seems to be a trend with what you're talking about. And, you know, oh, I started on this thing and then it lasted for X amount of time, you know, so. <laughs> well, there's a certain amount of investment that goes on with, with when you're involved in production, both both in you and the, you know, it's a, it's like a two way street, right? And the longer yeah. you're on production, the more of a brain trust you are. You have a lot. You have the benefit of a longer view. Yeah. And if you then become as as what has happened with my career, where you have multiple um, developmental um, views, if you if you're if you can, you know, it gets back to our earlier part of the conversation. If you're trying to envision where your work will end up, how it will impact the pipeline, how it will impact other people that are involved in fabrication or visual effects or whatever. If you build those those awarenesses, then over the course of production, your value goes up multiple times because you become a little bit of an expert. So you're a brain trust, but you also have a pedigree that can allow you to speak with confidence about a range of things as opposed to just one specific design. You're yeah. talking in a more generalized, uh, you know, um, super, like, you know, a meta level. You're talking at a meta level as opposed to just, you know, a specific level. Yeah. You know, actually, also, before I forget, you, you kind of tiptoed onto a topic which I actually talk about in the classroom a great deal, which is that, you know, how does one um, work smart and, and effectively uh, under, um, uh, you know, tough circumstances or in the context of career building. And there's a thing that I talk about in the classroom that I call interior methods. And what interior methods are is, is, is an awareness of where your successes stem from. So, what what happens on the interior that allows you to come up with design solutions 
what is it that you do that produces the optimum work, the, the best work that you create? And there's, there's usually it's hard to envision it because we're not used to looking at our interior in a really kind of method, methodological manner. We're not necessarily taught as children to look to the interior and, and understand yeah. it on a mechanistic level. But, but there's always um, contextual things like, you know, some people work better at night. Some people work better in the morning. That's very simple. But it, once you learn that about yourself, then use it as a strength. You yeah. Know? Avoid those late nights if you're a morning person. If you're a late night person, you know, try to get a schedule that suits that. What, do, you know, what, what music do you listen to? What kinds of, um, you know, what kinds of emotional states do you do best work in? And if you do that consistently and you really become a student of your own methods, um, they become much more manageable and reliable. Um, you can actually draw upon them with a lot less ramp up time, yeah. with a lot less trepidation, with a lot less insecurity. And the more you have that belief system, uh, the more you invest in that interior self, Your the more quickly greater. it responds, and then solutions come much quicker. More powerful solutions come much quicker. Yeah, and not not everybody communicates about it in that manner or talks no, about it in those should, ways. Though. This is higher level thinking, you know. If you well, want to do high-level work, it's the same thing. I, I absolutely agree. Uh, I, I think we've touched on it a lot already in this talk, but you know, it's not necessarily about what brush you use in Photoshop. It's about the decisions that you make throughout life that lend you to the, having a great experience, basically. That's what where, that's where my focus is with you, is, is you've managed to experience, from my perspective, which is not huge, but it's just a good understanding of the surface level that I'm able to obtain from your information, is that you've experienced some really amazing experiences and that's really not everybody gets a chance to do that and so manifestation and all these things that you're saying are really key to the basic the soup that makes your life basically you know that's it's fascinating to me because that's what differentiates a lot of people's experiences and what you're saying right now is basically designing your life towards your success which i totally agree with and couldn't agree more um, that's really it. That's you know a difference between a successful person and a non-successful person is their ability to use these methods. You know, at least I think one thing I've been really thinking about lately, which you might understand and totally agree with, is that the richest man and the poorest man, and not in monetary format of, of money, but in life in general, is time and understanding what to do with your time, how you use it as a tool, and that's basically what you're saying is a. Uh, you know, play to your strengths, you know, um, create the best situation for you to make the best work and use mm -hmm. that, you know, that's why I choose to do freelancing, which is you made the freelance shift when Del Toro kind of opened your eyes to it back in 97. Yeah, no, 95, 95. Okay. That's when you first encountered him is he pulled you out of ILM you're saying? Are you Yes, you, indeed. I think I think we met in I think we met maybe I, I think we may have met in the latter part of 94 but I I think it was maybe early 95 and then I, I left at the latter part of 95. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big influence and when you decided to do um, freelance stuff was that I mean obviously that's a bit of a jarring experience and a shift but um what were some of the things that you remember that helped you I guess, make that shift um, more of a successful shift or, you know, how was that for you? And is, is it something that you 
think it was attributed to your ability to be um, able to be, I guess, fluid and experience more. You know, like if you're in the if you're at a company and, and they're giving you whatever they can feed you, but if you're a freelancer, you can kind of jump around and have that experience. Is that kind of the freedom that you're able to, I guess, engage in? Yeah, um, I guess for me, it didn't seem that, um, it seemed, again, it was sort of, it seemed to grow from where I was headed. The, the truth is, is that a couple things happened in, in right after Jurassic Park. One on a personal level is I lost my father. He died suddenly of uh, Mm -hmm. cancer. And so I really wasn't prepared for that. And I didn't have a sense of how impactful it would be. And, and it kind of, What's weird is when you when you lose. You, in my case, my father wasn't just my parent. He was my he was uh, you know my uh, number one fan. You know he paid extremely close attention to my achievements and accomplishments, and he had been such a great mentor as a as a young um, child and as a young man. He treated me with a lot of. Um, seriousness like uh, he talked to me as a colleague from a very young age like five <laughs> I mean, you know it was crazy I got to work in his studio and he was very much um, uh, as an artist himself and as an educator he taught printmaking fine art printmaking at That's the amazing. university I went to undergraduate yeah he really did say to me on a regular basis that you, you can do whatever you want it just was you know always there um, uh, so his death struck me weird because um, I felt suddenly like I had lost my moorings. You know, sure. I, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do for myself. Yeah. Um, you know, in a weird way, I didn't know it was kind of. It's been uh, ingrained with you since five years old. Yeah, it's you, a fabric you're, you're, of yours life. Yeah, yeah, you're paying more attention to it than you might be aware of. You know, because you, you your successes are amplified by the reaction of your parents, or in my case, it was. So that happened, and then the other thing that happened, and this is sort of strange, but and I'm not sure it'll make total sense, but. Prior to arriving in the visual effects world, as I mentioned, I was I was a big film guy. My interest in film was very broad. You made films, right? I did, well, I did the usual Super 8s like you know everybody did at that time frame. And then I sure. got a I got a video camera early. I took out a loan, you know, to get a video camera. And so I was <laughs> making experimental videos, but those actually were being done at a time when like video editing was still really difficult. You had to use two VHS machines and you couldn't really monitor the edits. So you had to kind of make a list and just do them blind. And it was very complicated. Um, but, but either way, um, my, my interest in film was, was even before I arrived at ILM was as I saw myself as a designer. I really saw myself as being, what I wanted to do was design, you know, the discovery vehicle from 2001. I wanted to describe, I wanted to be the guy to design the spinner from Blade Runner. I wanted to be the guy to design the, I wanted to be Giger or Sidney or Joe Johnson. That was my goal. That was my goal. And what I found out once I got into the visual effects world, you occasionally could gain those opportunities, especially at ILM because ILM was such a commodity. You know, the visual effects world was was so small. ILM was kind of the king of the hill and there was no one close. So having an art department of the of the you know of the stature that we did, a lot of times directors would bring design issues, problems and assignments to the ILM art department. So you got to get a you got to get in there and, and get a sense of what that was like, you know, to function as a designer. Yeah. And that's really what excited me and drove me and what I wanted to do. The actual 
functional work that went into doing visual effects, you know, the facilities aspects of it, I was never that crazy about, never that into. Um, With the advent of computers, once ILM really started to move in the digital direction and, and, um, uh, you know, did Jurassic and these things, what what happened was suddenly if you were, um, if you could draw or paint or you had those skills, you could start to assist in the production pipeline. So you could literally like take frame grabs, for example, and do matte painting t- studies on top of them. You could you could do um, frame fixes. You could do roto mats. You could you could suddenly do things that didn't just function as a support to making visual effects happen in the in the context of the larger uh, facility, which is what art directors did. That was what the role of the art director was um, was a was was to facilitate the the larger production. But suddenly you were you could actually do production work. Additionally, prior to um the, the digital realm, the digital era, um the the uh, a film would come into ILM and right away there would be three people assigned to a film. Uh, the visual effects producer, the visual effects supervisor, and the visual effects art director. The visual effects producer was the one who oversaw the budget and the schedule, just like on a feature film, but that would have been just for ILM, just for the effects. There were the effects supervisor, who basically was the director of visual effects, who was responsible for execution, you know, how to do them, how they were going to be shot, how they were going to be uh, affected by the facility, and then how they were going to be, you know, completed. And then the visual effects art director, which was the role I had, who really acted as an aesthetic kind of I, you know, uh, an aesthetic monitor, somebody to watch out for aesthetic concerns, to to pitch in with designs when needed, and then to do storyboarding. And those were the only three people that stayed involved with the picture from the day it arrived at ILM to the day it went out as finished film, in mm. a, you know, a can of film. Everyone else, there was all these departments that were subdivided departments. So you might have a shot, for example, like some of those in Back to the Future or something like that, where you know you meet with the director, uh, the effects supervisor, the art director, the producer meet with the director. He explains the vision of the shot. Then you do some storyboarding and then it gets approved. Well, now you go to the model shop and then one group of guys who are expert at building models would build the DeLorean or the flying train or whatever the case may be. Um, then they would walk away. They were no longer involved after they finished that model. That model then would go over in the motion control stage and be put on a pylon you know, against the blue screen. Then that person would be taking over. The, the, the guys that work motion control photography, they would be you know, looking at the storyboards, talking to the effect supervisor, designing the shots, looking at the timing, looking at you know, um, the, what's required, and they would be doing the programming of the camera. That would be going on, and then they would walk away those pieces of film that have been shot with motion control, with the back, the mats, the various light passes, so on and so forth, those would go then to optical where they'd be composited. And those guys would take it over. In the same time frame, you would probably have a matte painter who might be doing some additional piece, a different additional shot or an, a piece for a larger effect shot. They would come in, they would do their work, they would walk away. So to create continuity through the facility, you, you had this small group, the production group, the art director, supervisor, and producer that carried it through from beginning to end. Once the digital really blossomed, it was the same group all the way through. Mm. The, they bring in the, the shots in the beginning. The, the group would be made up of you know, people that could composite it, could manipulate the frames, could you know, work with the animators. And there was some 
ins and outs. You know, you might have roto people for a short time. You might have animators for a shorter time. But by and large, it made the whole process more homogenous. And so all this is a long, interesting historical uh, perspective. But what yeah, happened to balanced. me? Yeah. yeah. What ha- happened to me in '94 was I suddenly started to see that I could get Im- more and more involved in the actual creation of the shots, the actual production pipeline, and I was very nervous about that. It made me feel like some of the kind of um, uh, opportunities that came with the way the ILM had been set up were possibly shifting in a way that I wasn't totally enamored with. And so the combination of that reality unfolding, the combination of losing my father, and then my interest in just what would Ty Linkson, the designer, have to say? What would he bring to this game? What would he, you know, how would he involve himself in in Hollywood in the larger scope of things all came together and so I was very ripe by the time that Del Toro uh, asked me to to go do Mimic it was I was actually investigating a number of other opportunities and and kind of seeing what might be capable I was very methodical about it but I was definitely had reached that place yeah okay that makes sense how how I mean all the the understanding of your path and the journey and, and what led you to make the decisions that you made. Um, it, it, do you did you have any kind of form of regret, or did you feel that right when you made the decision and how Mimic had opened up a possibility to have an interaction with Del Toro, and then it like led to obviously other things? Were you just ready to go? Does there, was there any kind of? I guess I mean let me see. I'm looking at your film catalog basically on your website i'm trying to think of what was around that area for you there was like spawn right it was, was spawn that was kind of before that no yeah there was yeah okay. spawn had spawn had kind of come and gone already <clears throat> that was when you're at ilm though working on yeah spawn? my okay. involvement with with spawn had been while i was still at ilm the i think the the question you ask there, it's there's two answers. The op, there's the positive kind of growth one, which was the idea of being the lead designer on a major film. You know, to be the the key designer on uh, yeah. you know of a creature, which I loved creatures and stuff. That was super intoxicating and highly motivating. And I already had the work. You know, through that ILM you know, uh, period, especially the Jurassic Park period, I had that work ethic. So I was really, I knew how to manage that interior, like I mentioned. So I figured the work I could, you know, I could take it on. So I was confident enough, although I didn't, the things that ended up being difficult for me were not things that I had, um, had the ability to see, like, like just to be uh, working in isolation for long periods of time is something that was pretty new to me. But, you know, you, you manage through it. Yeah. Um, I think the only time that I felt, I, I wouldn't call it regret, I would call it fear, hmm. was um, when the new Star Wars trilogy was very close to being completed, uh, the, what would have been, um, you know, the first of the new trilogy, um, which was would be Star Wars One, right? Yeah, that how it worked. When that was close to being complete, and I had friends that were working on it, um, I I kind of became very frightened that it was that I I had, would have missed that uh, cinematic moment in time because I was on the roster to work on it. Mm. I had already done the special edition, and when they were putting together the Jack Art Department, that's what it was referred to. Um, 
uh, I was on the roster. And I, actually, my leaving uh, ILM to go work with Del Toro was very shocking to a number of my colleagues. They were really mystified because at that time, no one left ILM. Yeah, it's just like the, you, you get that opportunity and you seize it and stay kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. This is, and it, it and this really is was. like um I mean I guess was it Framestore? Is that um is that James James Cameron's thing that he created? That uh Lightstorm. Lightstorm, sorry. That's that's later on down the road though, right? For you? Well, that- my working at Lightstorm by that time was uh as purely as a designer. Oh, okay. I, after leaving ILM, I never went back into visual effects. Well, what and I'm trying to say is that there was like ILM and then at that time there was ILM and there was like nothing else really, right? Yeah, like I mentioned, I mean, it it was a real head scratcher to people when I left ILM. Sure. Yeah. I mean, they were really, and as, additionally, and I I have to be a little bit careful because these are sometimes you hear things after the fact, and who knows, you know, who knows exactly. But I think because Guillermo hadn't really done an American picture yet. He was kind of an unknown commodity. I mean, people knew about Kronos, but if you describe to somebody what Mimic was, it's a giant cockroach. You know, it's a giant insect. It sounds kind of potentially B-movie. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that it was coming through dimension films and it was, you know, uh, it it, it didn't necessarily, it, it didn't necessarily speak of, uh, you know, uh, like a world-grabbing movie. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think people were like, "Really? You're really going to go do that?" Like, <laughs> yeah, that it's was got kind the of the Cronenberg kind of thing going on. Yeah, yeah, but on the other hand, um, um, the, this fear that I felt uh, was short-lived because um, I. But I began to realize it was it was more the unknown of uh, sure. you know opportunity than it was about anything that was real because after I had done the special edition, I mean, think about it. I saw star Wars when I was in high school. I mean, I read star log on my parents' couch. I read about (laughs) Phil Tippett. I read about Joe Johnson. I read about the motion control camera system. I read about George. I was, uh, you know, I was as much a fan as anybody back in those days. Empire Strikes Back was my favorite of the trilogy. It yeah, blew my mind. It's the best one. Yeah. So suddenly to be working not on the franchise, not on the new picture, but to have a time machine and go back in time and actually work on the original picture with George. Yeah, damn and, you. <laughs> I know. And then to get yeah. credit on it and then to yeah. get my work put into the art of book, which I had, you know, basically dog-eared to death you know when i had gotten my hands on it initially <laughs> it's sort of surreal on a level that oh yeah you know like it's, uh, it, what number of people are there in the in the world you know it's, it's like a microscopic it's number you and george <laughs> yeah no i well, know and that that happened to me again on avatar because there were five of us that had worked on jurassic that's so cool yeah so they'd be in the club that worked on an avatar, but then to be in the club that worked on Jurassic Park and Avatar, you know, it starts to become, you know, five people on the planet. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Being a part of these kind of films, um, because, you know, that's one of my concerns too is in my career is I don't want to be pigeonholed necessarily. Do you enjoy these kind of films? Because sometimes I don't always enjoy this kind of sci-fi, heavy production kind of film. Sometimes I love to watch a film. Like some of my favorite films are ones without any or very little, very minimum amount. Like Coen Brother films are some of my favorites just because like Fargo, for example, is just 
all about character development and 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 just the weird human condition basically which i find to be ironically hilarious and disturbing and they have that same kind of sensation i think with their work do you find yourself in love with what you do in the films that you make or do you find yourself in love with everything else or is it just kind of you know whatever whatever floats your boat at that given time of what you're into well what's ironic about you bringing up the cone brothers is that and this is only an ironic story, then I'll answer your question more directly. But sure. the Cohen brothers' mother, Rena Cohen, was my art history teacher. Oh, shut up, really? Wow. Yeah, so I actually knew the, about the Cohen brothers for, through their mother prior huh. to them directing a film. And then later, subsequently, I met them when they were on uh, at ILM for Hudsucker Proxy. Uh-huh. And what, was, what was weird is that when I knew they were going to be there, I, I kind of found what time of the day and I just made my way down because I had no reason to meet them. But I went down there and they said, Joel, Ethan, I had your mom as an art history teacher. <laughs> and they both looked at me like I was from Mars. Sure. But sure. they stood and talked to me and I explained that I'd gone to Sinclair State and that it was all just a strange kind of, you know, weird story. Like that that you could actually have such a bizarre connection. but um, That's cool. But as far as the film stuff, you know, films vary for me um, as they do for all people. I mean, sure. certain films you feel like you're the perfect match for the material, as I did on Avatar. And, and I would say with all of Del Toro's films, I, I, feel like, I, I feel like I'm not only just the appropriate, I, and not just the, the, a guy who can do it, but I'm the appropriate guy, like I'm the right guy. And when you feel that, that you're the right guy for the right job at the right time, um, it gives you a lot of um, pleasure. You know, it makes the process much more um, complete and, and whole. Um, so, but there are projects where, you know, maybe for various reasons that, that, that things don't feel as... Um, 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 rich, you know, you, it, there's some of it where it maybe feels more perfunctory or just process. But I, I will say actually that I've managed to find on every gig I've had professionally an aspect of it that really floated my boat, as you, as you mentioned. I mean, I really do love the process of cinema and just talking to directors and getting that vantage point and listening to where their head's at is just exciting for me. And trying to bring something original and new to the to the party and at the same time be a custodian of their interests is is another thing so i guess as as i see my my freelance career i've always appreciated and enjoyed and taken a great deal of um inertia off of the process Hmm. um and and another thing i did and I, i kind of hesitate bringing it up because it's sort of is such an extraordinary piece to the way my my freelance career has been shaped that it that it's sort of unreasonable like it's not something i could tell a student today like well you should really make it a point to do this because (laughs) it really was it was really a reality that manifests from a very specific point in time Mm. and that is that when i left to work with del toro i made it a personal mission to never work for anyone but a director like i would not I've never worked as part of an art department. I've never worked under a production designer. I've never worked for an art director. I've only worked for the director. Yeah, and that that's a real big um, kind of thing to set out to do. Um, because, But at the same time, you have to make that decision in order for it to happen. So 
you know, and, and you manifested it to the highest and you've managed to make it happen. I, I couldn't agree with you more working as I have through like a producer of a production house to that's a producer of a producer that goes finally to the director, the convoluted communication level is so far and distant that I feel like it's, I'm completely outside of the, of the, of the, of the loop, so to speak, you know, whereas working even closer you feel like you're right there with the source. You're able to really go, hey, what are you trying to do here? Well, I can do that. Let's do this. Let's figure this out, you know? Or have you seen this or a riff on that kind of stuff? And that, that's a really good, that's a powerful choice too. And when you're saying it, it really clicks to me in my head. I, I, sh- I, should, I should be really thinking of that similar level of experience and interaction because that's, a, that's the best way to do it, honestly. I couldn't agree more with you, you know? Yeah, I, again though, I think that, that so much has changed in Hollywood um, on so many levels, on so many fronts, that that I am very capable, as much as I can say something like that, I'm also very capable of seeing how extraordinary um, that reality has, uh, the fact that that actually manifested itself as a reality is something that's really, I think, as much about... Um, time and locale as it is about intention it's one of those kind of serendipitous synergistic things that came along because because even if even when you look at conceptual designers um in 95 i probably knew personally you know every conceptual designer of note that was working yeah there wasn't the, the 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 pool was not that deep and it was there wasn't as many films being made. You know, like I, when I went to ILM, they only did like four to six films a year. Mm, yeah. You know? And which is so, a ton of films, though. That's a lot of work. Well, yeah, but Depends now which they, facet, they I guess. do a dozen a year. You know what I mean? The, yeah. There's just... It, it was well, just it's, a, it's, a, it's a machine now. So, yeah. Well, yeah. It's a, it's a, much, more, it's a much more advanced uh, process. You know, you, it's got less moving parts. It's all digital now. So... But but it still is um, it still was a very different time frame as far as you know the stock that you had uh, your you know your value uh, with regards to what your craft was and you know how you what you had done and where you were and what your vision was these things it was very it was more exclusive than it is now yeah absolutely uh, I think that's really great and I also I mean even though that's a real big high kind of goal to say I'm only going to work with directors and blah, blah, blah. I, I mean, you've earned it, obviously, and that's what you wanted to do. And then you set out to do it and you made it happen. Um, cheers to you. And then I also think that it's important to see the power of manifestation, you know, like the, the power of knowing your own self-worth and the, the, the power of understanding that I'm going to set forth and, and, and move forward at this high, high level. When you set those goals, it's like you, you manifest them and, and, and then it kind of becomes you, you know, and you become it. And that level of, of, of um, confidence, you know, you're playing, you're playing at that high level. It's, a, it's really cool. It's admirable, you know, like to, to set out to do those things because like you could quickly and easily go, you know, self-deflate and go, yeah. You know, I gotta, you know, do this. I, I gotta just work on this like car commercial, and then, you know, uh, yeah, you know, five years goes down the road. You know, all your movies and directors that you wanted to work with, you you haven't put those five years of, of, of attention with them, and 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 you're five years further away from your goals. You know, so 
I think you're a product of, of manifestation, what your career is, it seems, you know, which is fascinating and amazing at the same time, which is what this podcast is really about for me. It's, it's not necessarily the, the details of certain things. It's more about the bigger picture. These are the things that I think get lost in, 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 in interviews or, um, I don't know, just in common commentary and stuff like that. I feel like people don't touch on these kind of bigger, higher level experiences and stuff, which I think I find fascinating. So, yeah, it's, it's really awesome. Well, they're <laughs> it's a little, they're a little, thanks. That, that, I appreciate that, that. But it's, I think it's time consuming. It takes time to yes. cover this kind of material. It's not, um, this is a perfect facet for doing it though, you know, yeah, speaking, yeah. you know, and, and we're not like you're, you're out and you said Virginia. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, and I'm out in San Diego. So we're on opposite parts of the country and using technology, we're able to have a communicative experience, you know, which is, I find to be awesome. You're teaching now. Is that why you're out there? Indeed, I'm teaching at um, Virginia Commonwealth University, which is uh, kind of recognizes the top um, public university school of the arts in the country. Mm. Um, cool. I'm teaching actually in the Department of Communication Arts, which is uh, in it's under the umbrella of the School of the Fine Arts or the School of the Arts, but it's actually uh, it focuses on uh, what you what you could describe as um, commercial art, but but, but you know that is not so, such a term because really so much of of what's done now is uh, like if you look at intellectual properties and stuff, we do focus quite a bit on how do you look at project management, how do you think about your own your own projects. So we kind of call it applied arts. Hmm. But if you say applied arts, it sort of sounds like well, aren't all arts applied? Yes, they are. But it's, <laughs> yeah. But it's with a it's a it's a it's definitely our my department is is focused on. Uh, professional tracks. You know, we want to create uh, opportunities for students in their chosen fields. It's not as much about uh, you know the 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 methods of uh, the fine arts schools, which was about you know, introspection and self interpretation and those kind of interior things that have to do with um, you know uh, the fine arts universe. Correct. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. I mean, and this is something that like I picked up on a lot of your interviews as well, and it's probably why you're kind enough to share your time with myself and the rest of the audience is that giving back has been a big part of your um, mantra, I suppose. How important is it to you to give back? And is it, do you find it to be a valuable part of um, your career doing such a thing? Teaching? Yeah. Stuff? Yeah. I'm a big believer in this idea of the, that, that there's stations of life. You know, that's what they are referred to. It's, the, it's a, that term comes out of like psychology, you know, psychology, the, the, the you know the the study of of culture or people individuals um, and stations of life are just kind of the reality of the process of going from a child uh, you know to to an old man and then to kick out of here is that you know you're at various places um, uh, you know there's an age when you're going through puberty and you're about the infatuation with the opposite sex there's the the period when you get your driver's license you're starting to have your own voice and you're starting to become an individual and there's the early career you know where you're starting to try to find your potency and in, in, uh, in culture and in industry and then you know you you have family and then there's these periods where you kind of you can see that there's interests that are kind of not biological but but they're definitely related to uh, a calendar a yeah kind of seven year thing calendar. there's a seven year thing that happens. exactly yeah i have a strong believer in a seven year cycle yeah but but you do get to a point where you think certainly you know you've accumulated enough knowledge that 
um, uh, you, you know, that you start to get a sense that you shouldn't just hoard it and keep it inside. Um, but for me, it's interesting. And if I could just share a little, a little, uh, a, a little story, which is ex- extremely um, real, and it's it's I, I, it's a story that I've been I've been kind of trying to understand. Uh, with greater and greater fidelity, and it's one that I, I use in my classes when I meet with students on the first day. And and it, growing up in the Midwest, and I, I'm, you sound like you might have a, a little bit of a similar uh, kind of take on things, just judging from the way you, the words you choose and how you communicate. But one thing that w- is really um, is really um, kind of hammered into you in the Midwest is is a is a lot of um, humility. You know, humility is a big deal. You don't, you don't want to be an upstart. You don't want to be a show-off. You don't want to be arrogant. You certainly don't want to be conceited. And confidence is a strange thing because I think arrogance and confidence are kind of two sides of a coin. You've got to be careful with it yeah. um, because confidence can be appear arrogant and then certainly confidence can manifest arrogance. So I've always really been shy to be um, too much of a self-promoter. Um, and too much of a person who takes, uh, you know, this kind of cavalier attitude about, of course, I've done these things. I've been, I've been very much the opposite of that. And so looking back over my career, when I was working on Jurassic Park, for example, it was very easy for me in that time frame. And you were right about one thing about Jurassic is after it came out, everybody was freaked out. Like yeah. everybody's yeah. mind was blown. I mean, yeah. I spoke. You showed at the so world many, of possibility. You opened up a, basically opened up a portal of imagination that didn't yeah, exist. People, and then people were caught off guard. Like oh, no of course. one knew. It's no perfect. one knew what to expect. Like they were just like they didn't even know what they saw. That's they what movies like, what are supposed to be. That's what that yeah. stuff is a tool for. That's what made it perfect. You know. Yeah, I could go. Like I did a lot of talks for ILM. Um, speaking engagements and, you know, like at Art Center and uh, San Diego State University. And I was involved in, you know, outreach to students. And I liked that because I, I might had my father as an example. And I'd also yeah. considered going into education when I was younger. But um, in that time frame, if you would ask me, I would, said, I would have said, well, I was very fortunate that I was at Industrial Light and Magic at just that point in time, which is true. And I still believe it. But, but you know, the idea that I had a substantial amount to offer the process would have been something that would have come up over the larger conversation. It wouldn't have been something I would have been pointing to or directing, you know, the viewer to like, well, you know, I was there for the initial test. I was doing these, you know, texture maps for the T-Rex when it was still unsure whether the dinosaurs were going to be able to be done digitally. I mean, there are these pieces that are there, but by and large, I would have said that I had uh, great fortune to be there. Yeah. Um, when I met Del Toro, was, like I mentioned, that was through Matthew Robinson. I would have said Matthew was a great custodian of me, and he really opened the store, and I walked right through. But it was really good fortune, and I was very lucky and fortunate, which is true again, but really does uh, doesn't really illuminate or point out that I was the right guy for that job. I was ready to go, and I worked incredibly hard on Guillermo's behalf. I tried to understand him completely. I understand the vision of the picture and just relentlessly stayed on task. Um, So these kinds of, you know, kind of sidelining kind of observations are always there. And for me, I used to use them as a regular, as a part of my, description, my self-talk and my, you know, my self-construct. But suddenly, um, about six or eight weeks into Avatar, I was working, I'd go in on the weekends. I was living in an apartment not far from Lightstorm because I still lived in Northern California. And um, 
I was in on a weekend. I'd often meet with Jim on the weekends because he was had a very busy schedule, and and it was I I, I really didn't have anything else to do. <laughs> <laughs> but I was there on a Saturday, and I knew that like I loved the work that that Sin Mead had done uh, on aliens, and you know I loved the work that um, Jim had done with Stan Winston on Terminator, and I, I I loved Jim's films, and was so passionate about the vision of his films and the yeah. people that he'd worked on, and and it struck me in this weird moment while I was at my computer, kind of working on some of the vehicles, uh, and it suddenly struck me on a very profound level that I was one of those guys. Yeah, that's so crazy. Like, I couldn't, Jim could hire anyone he wanted on the planet. He could have hired anyone that he even had crossed his radar. And yet, there I was. Yeah. And I was in this senior lead position working on all these vehicles exclusively with him. And it caused me to suddenly realize that that it was the cumula the uh, the culmination of my life work and my skill and my capacity and ability that was the reason I was there there was no I was fortunate to be it was that he made a list and said and see if Ty Ellingson's available that's extraordinary and that also affected how my life story looked to me. And at that juncture, I started to think, what have I done? How was I able to transition through all these pieces to go from somebody that was doing visual effects to doing, you know, I started as a fine artist, then I was a model builder, then I was an effect supervisor, then I was a designer. What was the piece or pieces that allowed me to successfully traverse each of those metamorphoses and and arrive at a place of that stature and so i began to start to 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 try to figure that out and i came up with what i described to myself uh, as the buoyant tool set that yeah. there was a there was a part of me and part of my interior that moved with me through space and time and maintained its value to the process. So the buoyant tool set, even though I didn't know quite what was inside of it, was the thing that I said, ah, that's what has allowed me to successfully um, move uh, at 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 this level through all these years and these manifestations. And so I started to think, well, what would be in the buoyant tool set? And it kind of came up with four things. And they they provide um, the backbone to what I teach in the classroom, and they provide my teaching philosophy, basically. And the four things are <clears throat> really three lines of development and then one kind of uh, skill or one practice that's sort of set out separately. And the first line of development, which... I think is critical to the buoyant tool set is the acquisition of skills. That's what we all do. It's, you know, you go and you learn a new application, you sit and draw, you, and you've done that since you were born. Like when you learn to eat beans off of a fork as a baby, well, I guess you're a baby, they give you a spoon, but if <laughs> you've learned to do a skill because, because you had a need and you had a passion that drove you. And then you, um, you then just, started that practice. So the acquisition of skills is ongoing. I'll be doing it. I'm learning a new couple of new pieces of software now. I'm doing a little writing. You're doing your thing. I might decide to, you know, start shooting 
photography, you know, doing different kinds of, you know, film projects or books or whatever. That's that's ongoing. But that's that's when I talk to students. That's something you have to you have to keep that as a focus, Absolutely. and that will never end. It the second never, one, yeah. the, the the second thing in the buoyant tool set is what I call the illumination, fortification, and advancement of interior methods. The illumination, fortification, and advancement of interior methods. And that gets back to what we were talking about earlier. So first you identify, illuminate what's going on inside of you. Then you make it stronger. You, you say, okay, I'm a good designer of these kinds of things. I got to just double down and, and really refine my approaches so that I can make those things confidently on demand. And then you advance those skills. Like we were talking, you try to figure out, do I, when do I do my best work? How do I do it? You know, and, and try to get a handle on that so you can build it up and, and um, count on it. The third line of development is um, the amplification of confidence. Uh, because artists don't tend to talk about confidence. Artists tend to talk about, you know, their techniques and, and, and they get a little shy sometimes. Why is that you think? Cause I agree with that. And that's a, a topic I bring up quite often on the podcast as well. I think a lot of it's from, um, my personal take on it is it's a, a mental thing where, um, we are, what we do is, is comes from a very sensitive thing for the most part for some people. They create they would be creating without pay, making the bills, paying the bills or whatever. They'd just be doing it, right? It's just the act of creation. And it might come from a very, like, personal space. And I think deep down, when, when for most people, they aren't confident. Um, most people in life, I think, aren't. And I think <coughs> artists have to expose that a lot more because we're speaking with emotions to a fourth dimension, basically, of communicative. Uh, yeah, I think, I think it's all those things that you're mentioning. For me, I think that it smacks of uh, con- t- discussing confidence openly in a, in the, in, I think in, in, the, with, in a circle of artists or in a circle of creatives, it can smack of self-help. It can smack of that kind of yeah. Tony Robbins, late night life coach. <laughs> you know, it kind of, it sounds like, you know, kind of sticky, you know, yeah. like it sort of yeah. seems like, you, that's for guys who sell insurance, you know, yeah. it's not, but, but in point of fact is, I think it's because the word is sort of misused. Confidence is the ability to function without anxiety. That's a great way of looking at it. Actually, I've never heard it put like that, but functioning without anxiety is a great way of, because anxiety, it, it, it drives a lot of things um, for myself and people I know. But I, I don't like the power that it has because it's absolutely draining. It's like a hole in the tire when you're trying to drive across the country, you know. Yeah, it's yeah. exactly. That's a good analogy. Yeah. I think additionally, it's also what confidence does is it allows you to go for bigger and bigger goals. Yes. You know, and that's another thing that as a designer, as an artist or whatever, you know, in the creative realm, you have to be looking for um, – the 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 larger goals and 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 feel that you're you're not, you're worthy of them and you're capable and you're going to do them and you're going to have them and that's confidence you, in my mind even if you're extremely successful you still need to have more confidence it's an infinite amount you can never have too much because it'll always manifest in new ways so you know there's always this one thing you haven't addressed maybe it's an interpersonal thing maybe it's an old relationship maybe it's a a fear whatever but eventually when you accumulate enough confidence then all things are possible and you can start to uh, use it like at a, at a higher level you know it's that whole intention thing again i'm 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 always trying to uh 
speak with my students about that, uh, yeah. the notion of its importance and not being afraid of it as a word. You know, Because if I could come up with a better word, I would use it. But it, well, I think it, your uh, operating without anxiety is, is a wonderful way of putting what confidence actually is. I think it's been dumbed, like, I think it's been bastardized and used in a negative context um, too much where it makes you feel like um, people shy away from using it in that regard, I suppose. But the way that I think that you've used it in your tool set has allowed you to do, like a, pri- a prime example is, I'm, I just really want to work with directors only. That's a, mm-hmm. that's a confidence thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, the last of the the buoyant tool set is, which is the, so the those first three are all lines of development. So you'll be trying to manifest greater confidence your whole life. Yeah, and you're going to be always, you know, working on the interior methods, and you're always going to be acquisitioning skills. But the last one is is really something that it kind of is. I see as as constantly needing to be recycled, and that's the incubation of opportunity. The incubation of opportunity is something where you have to constantly keep an eye out, uh, keep uh, on one of your radars tuned to the developmental universe. What what now with 3D printing? What now with you know new software? What now with new ways to do the Oculus Rift? What oh, are yeah. these things going to mean? Yep. And how am I going to be prepared for them? And the way you are prepared is to be first aware. You know, if you're not aware, you're unprepared. I read a great article last week that was talking about a, who's the guy who slept forever? Rip Van Winkle, isn't that the guy's name? I think that's his name. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I know there's another guy. Rip Van Winkle slept, but there's also the guy who spun Strontigold. I can't remember who that guy is, but yeah. But they were calling it like what we're going to have in a, as a culture is we're going to have episodes of Rip Van Winkle syndrome, which is when we take our attention off of something because of this exponential um, unfolding of technology, to look away from something for even a few moments and look back to it, it won't look any longer like what it looked like before we looked away. Yep. So that we're going to have these, as a culture, we're going to experience these waves of, of like, um, of things changing without our awareness and then suddenly they go well when did they have this yes like when did oculus rift get invented you know oh yeah yeah so by being i'd love to read that article if you could send it to me if you Ah, you i'll try to find it you don't have to i just i I, i'm fascinated by psychological um, yeah it's just that's the thing for me really you know it's fascinating stuff it is it's totally is so so i think that that incubation of opportunity is Something that we should all be aware of as creatives also is like looking for the new thing or, or even looking for opportunity within ourselves. Can we improve our methods? Can we, you know, find some better strategies and so forth? But, but that doesn't, that goes on, but it changes so dramatically. I think of it as more as like a rebooting, you know, like you have to keep recycling that thing so you don't get the Rip Van Winkle syndrome, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, I mean, yeah, because you're just, you wake up and go like, when did this become a trend? You know, like oftentimes when I find myself, because I have a nine-year-old daughter, and every oftentimes when I, I find myself because she's she's in tune with a whole different universe, basically. Right. Um, and I try to keep myself as relevant as possible. It's part of my job, I feel, um, and that's part of the incubation of opportunity that you're talking about. But um, even even with the rate that I consume information, and I try to be as as on the front of I, as I can. It's still like, yeah, it's like, I'm like, when did this happen? You know, like, how is this possible? You know, the Hadron Collider thing is something that I'm fascinated about. Like, you know, what are they finding out of here? And and what's the technology that's happening now? And and because there's so many people, the world's so populated with so many people, the downside is obvious, many things that we're familiar with. But the upside is that 
people are congregating and building things at a, an, ex, an an alarming rate um, on good and both bad as well. But I just find it fascinating, you know. They're, yeah, the, the it's extraordinary. Idea, it, it really is, and 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 I, you know, I th- that's really what you know gets me up in the morning thinking about ideas about like how is it that we're an, a creature that exists on this planet designed by time and and where we we are what makes us so advanced and how is it and why why is it that we don't know the answers to so many pivotal things and that's what that's what fantasy and film do for me at least you know they try to a good film at least takes me to those levels you know they take me to those levels of understanding a deeper understanding of, of a possibility i suppose you know so mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. what i think um really great sci-fi science fiction does you know that's what makes a lot of some of my favorite authors and stuff really open up those portals of, of imagination and stuff and yeah, i just find it fascinating i just can't get enough of it to be completely honest i wish i could just do like the matrix thing and just plug all this shit into my head all the time just like, <laughs> yeah i mean actually, it wouldn't be enough <laughs> that's but as i've gotten older my my primary source of anxiety is i'm not going to get to see enough of this stuff like I'm, <laughs> I, they, I wake up i try to keep my reading of of technology and and science down to about an hour and a half a day. Well, that's good though. But but man, you can barely do that. Yeah. Because yeah. there's so much happens in a 24-hour cycle that you just you know, you got to really be careful. That's why I actually when I joined Facebook, I was really reluctant. I, somebody wanted me to look at some photos and I really didn't <laughs> want to, but yeah. over the years since I've been on it, it's really become an extraordinary tool. I think that people that kind of um, you know, lament about or kind of, you know, have these negative connotations or vibes about social media and Facebook and so forth. I don't get a sense that they're using it effectively because no. it's like having a miniature transmitter and a miniature tuner and, and through people like yourselves. I mean, I know, I mean, I, I mean, I see your post and you see mine, but what's interesting is you get the right collective of people and it's, you get the most extraordinary information in real time. Yes. It's like all of us become human filters for our colleagues. It's, yeah. It's amazing, and and um, it's powerful in a way that is I. It's it's just I'm really enamored with it. I'm enamored with um, the potential for artists and and the potential for designers and and the 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 speed of of what's happening and how quickly um, innovation can occur. It's 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 like I never dreamt I could be here at this moment in time it's pretty extraordinary i couldn't agree more and i think that you're exposing another part of just what you're saying part of your principles is that's the opportunistic side that you're not in a, in a selfish way but just seeing that this this thing originally was to to send photos or see some photos and then you go oh well like he's on here oh that, that's interesting what he just posted whoa everybody else is posting interesting stuff this is very interesting and then it just kind of snowballs and becomes this interesting experience that you can tap into it can also be a very bad experience but it's just like a tool you know it is it's it's an enormous tool and it depends on how you use it what it becomes you know like i've I've made some recent big decisions and choices um with how i interact with these things and one of them has been i I actually don't read a lot of comments anymore i used to be a lot more involved with that i find it to be a lot more time consuming um, unless I'm trying to send something for a feedback loop where I'm asking for advice or something. But right, when I, right. When I just post something, it's not like I don't want to hear anybody else's interpretation or opinions of things. It's just that I, I'd rather focus on other things, basically. I'm realizing yeah. as I get older, it's like there's only 24 hours in my day. And if, I, if I'm trying to be healthy, I need to get at least six to eight hours of sleep. 
And if I do that, I'm, I'm, I only have, you know, six to seven hours if I'm pushing hard of real concentrated thought. And if I can even get that at that, you know, like s- cycle. So I'm just being really, op- like I'm trying to be very <laughs> uh, precise about how I, how I do the things that I do basically, you know. Time is so, uh, it's fleeting and it's, it's scary. Like I think that might be the thing you're saying about anxiety, <laughs> getting anxiety because you're not able to really embrace it all. You know, it's, yeah. it's a you know, wave. It's, I've had a, I've had a very tumultuous relationship with time, uh, my whole life. It's been, a it's been something that it, it's uh, something I, I don't know how I got so aware of it at such a young age, but I'm, I'm very, I'm very aware of, and, and that's another one of those things too, where, you know, I, I think it, it it's kind of a, another facet to our whole conversation is get on it. Yeah. Get on it. Don't. Yeah. And if things, if you can't understand aspects of where you're coming from emotionally or conceptually or psychologically, however you want to describe it. Yeah. Put the focused in time time in on it now because just to just to call it a symptom of yourself for a long period of time, it may not ever come back as a negative, but it, it may be a, something that becomes an obstacle. And I certainly, much like the revelation about um, you know transcending to become one of these guys that's a front runner, uh, you know, a personality, a talent in Hollywood is you you kind of have to. I had to deal with my ideas about. Um, you know, humility to, to allow myself to, to be real, to be realistic, to be a real manifestation of what I really had accomplished. I had to address those issues. So, yeah. you know, I think as we look for successes, we have to look to ourselves first and, and try to address those self-sabotaging things we might have or those insecurities we have or those lack of clarity or lack of vision or whatever it is. Yeah. But, but you, they don't go away without effort. Be know? the change that you want to see in the world. It's exactly. A, it's a line that I, I often remember and, and I love. And anytime I become, I go in a negative rant or something like that, I always think to myself, what am I projecting? And am I actually projecting something positive that's helping or, or not? And, um, you know, that's the line that really usually, usually saves me from making an error. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it just, I, I'm fascinated by that. I think that's a very, there's a truth in that and in the manifestation of it, which I find really awesome. This has been like an amazing podcast for me personally. I'm 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 sure so many people are going to get a ton out of it. You've had so much experience and, and so many wonderful things, and, and and you're still you're still pushing hard. I can tell you're really enjoying the bounty of life, and I'm excited to see where this all goes for for you. If you're ever in San Diego, definitely let's get together and hang out and share some time. That'd be awesome. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's it's and I I just want to thank you again for taking the time to have an awesome chat and if you ever want to um come back and have a chat about any of this experience or something comes up to you in your mind. I mean there's so many stories I'd love to hear. I wanted to get some um some funny stories about like, you know, just on-set stories because those are kind of things that nobody other than, you know, the people there present experience, you know, but perhaps another time if you're ever interested in that, but um, yeah, I really appreciate yeah. it. Well, Ash, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to your listeners, and 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 I, I you've caught me at a good at a good point in my career. I do have a lot of goals still left to uh, you know to address. So I would definitely say we should try to make a future date and have another confab. So I would. I'd love that. That'd All be right. amazing. 
Well, have an amazing day. And um, yeah, thank you so much. And I really appreciate it again. And we'll have links to your work and anything else that you would want to share. You can just send it on my way. We can put it at the bottom of the podcast. So people that want to consume more information about this can get get their hands on it. So. Absolutely. And if any of your listeners are interested in uh, looking me up on Facebook, it's just Ty Rubin. And uh, I, the more the merrier as far as I'm concerned.